Amen. Um, if you'd like to have the Bible open in front of you, that will help you. If you haven't got an, a journal um, so you can make some notes, um, there are still some at the back, um, please go and grab one of those. That will be helpful for you. Um, but as, as we start, let's think about things that are big enough to sustain us. Um, last year, um, Nikki, my wife, had a birthday, um, the kind of birthday where you invite a lot of people to come. Um, and I, I took it upon myself to make a cake for her party. Uh, we, we planned for a good number of people to be there, so I had to think what kind of cake will be big enough. If a sing, single cupcake would not be enough. I, I think in the end I used um, 20 eggs to make the cake. And if you know anything about cakes, that means it was a big cake. Um, but it had to be to sustain everyone who came. Uh, what is big enough to sustain us? Um, 20 eggs might be big enough to sustain a party with a cake. Um, but what, what's, what's really big enough to keep us going through all the things that we face. Uh, my favourite novel is The Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, it tells the tale of Edmond Dante, who is um, wrongfully um, put in jail, um, and he spends years in misery, living in solitary confinement in this jail, and it's horrible, and he's beginning to plan to end his life when a treasure is discovered that sustains him. Uh, initially it's the treasure of friendship he makes contact with another prisoner and that keeps him going and then this prisoner tells Edmund of a vast store of treasure more than that could ever be counted that will be his um, and that promise of unspeakable riches in the future puts a steely resolve in Edmund today not just to survive his time in prison but to look for a way out now, what about for us as we sit here today? What is it that is, that is big enough to sustain us in our lives? Now, do we know of a treasure that is so vast and it is so rich that even in the darkest of conditions, it can instill a hope in us, a steely hope, a resolve not just to survive, but to get out? Uh, the passage we have this morning um, that we've read together um, is one of the best known in Isaiah. Um, it has the ring of Christmas. We've mentioned Christmas already. We've got a Christmas passage. Um, Josie keeps telling us every day how many days there are till Christmas. Um, but I, I think as we come to it, it'd be helpful to practice a little kind of sanctified forgetfulness. Now try and hear this passage of Isaiah when it was first given, uh, way back in the 8th century BC. Uh, let, let me remind you of where we are in Isaiah. Uh, chapters 2 to 12 uh, marked out as a section of his book. Um, they're divided by chapter 6, when Isaiah has that dramatic personal encounter with the living God. Uh, chapters 2 to 5, before that, um, with a background to chapters 2 to 5, is a time of stability. Uh, the, the king Uzziah had been king for a long time, and the nation had prospered. Uh, they'd grown in wealth, and as their, their growth in wealth, had, uh, they'd grown in wealth, they'd also grown in pride. Uh, that they, they were spiritually stuttering and turning away from the Lord. That then after chapter 6, in the, the section chapter 7 to 12, the, the background is the tumultuous reign of King Ahaz. Uh, and, and now the nation is not wealthy or prosperous. It's on its knees. It's under pressure. It's under threat. And the people will turn anywhere other than to the Lord. Uh, chapter 9 um, brings us into a kind of subsection of this section. What we're going to see over the next few chapters is this. Um, in, in our passage today, we, we hear this, this promise of the, the reign of a righteous king. Then it's followed by a section 
speaking a message of judgment to the pride of the nation of Israel, then a message of judgment on the pride of the nation of Assyria, and then it's wrapped up again with another promise of the reign of a righteous king. And the purpose of all of this is to call the people to trust the Lord. When everything else is falling apart, the message is, you can trust the Lord. Uh, This passage today, we're going to take a couple of bites at it. I'm just going to look at the first half of it today. We'll look at the second half next week. Um, But where does it begin? It begins in verse 2 by speaking about light in the darkness, verses 1 and 2. Light in the darkness. Uh, when I was in my, my first year at university, I lived in a halls of residence, and um, there was, there was um, all, all the kind of girls who lived in the hall, uh, every week would gather to watch a program. Most of the boys did as well. Um, and it, it was a kind of um, serial drama. I think it was Cold Feet. And it, and it was the kind of time when you had to watch a program at the time it was on. Remember those days? Um, so so everyone, everyone would kind of get together to watch this, this program. I didn't get involved in it, and it seemed quite emotional. Um, uh, now, I think it must have been towards the end of a series, and um, I walked into the room as the program was finishing, and the atmosphere was heavy, thick with grief. Uh, some lead character had died, and I, I sensed that, so I thought maybe I should lighten the mood with a few remarks. Um, and uh, you know, daggers were shot from tear-stained eyes around the room. There was one girl who didn't talk to me for a long time after that, if she ever did again. Um, verse 1 of our passage is like that room. It has a heavy atmosphere. It's thick with hopelessness. Now, verse 1 is a verse that transitions from the end of chapter 8 and leads us into chapter 9. And chapter 8 ended with a warning. The warning was, if these people keep ignoring the Lord, there will be no hope. Now, verse 20 has said, if anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. The message is, if, if they keep refusing to listen to what God says, they keep refusing to trust what God is promising, there will be no tomorrow. And and there will be distress. And there will be darkness. And verse 22 ends by saying they will be thrust into utter darkness. Verse 1 then is a conclusion. That's how it's styled. The the nevertheless has a sense of, of conclusion, saying the sure outcome of what we have just heard is this. It's important we see that because verse 1 is quite ambiguous. It sits between verse 22 and and verse 2. And if you read it only with verse 2, it sounds very positive. But if you read it with verse 22, it has a negative feel about it. If you hear it with verse 22, it says that they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, in conclusion, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. What is gloom? Gloom is the fading of light. It's the the barely light, isn't it? Gloom isn't quite utter darkness. Gloom is what you have on the way to utter darkness. To say no more gloom could very well mean that even the fading light will be gone. But then if we look ahead to verse 2, no more gloom could mean that the fading light gets swallowed up with brightness. The second half of verse 1 holds that ambiguity. There's a contrast between the past and the future. In the past, it says these places were humbled, but in the future, they will be honoured. It's probably the best way to read it, but 
But, but even that those words for humble and honor could mean in the past it was easy, in the future it will be more crushing. And if you're stuck in verse 22, if you've only got the lenses of verse 22, you're only going to see darkness. It's all going to sound like there's just dark upon dark. In fact, the places in view in verse 1 are the most northern territories in Israel. The, the, the Zebulun, Naphtali, the the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. These places were the places that first fell when the Assyrian army came. It happened in 733 BC. It was 11 years before Assyria took over the rest of the country. And so it's likely that as Isaiah spoke these words out in Jerusalem, that news, that the news that these places had fallen would be filtering through. And people would be talking on the streets saying, if these places have fallen, then what will come next? Surely the message of thrust into utter darkness is the only thing that will happen. Uh, and yet, though, if that light shining in verse 2 is allowed to leak back into verse 1, there's an upward turn. Uh, these places now humbled will one day be honoured. If that light leaks back, then it's saying that what is lost today will one day be found. What now is only dark and thick with hopelessness will one day be completely transformed. In fact, transformed so much so that this Galilee is called here and only here Galilee of the nations. That the future honor is not restricted or limited, but will overflow from this nation to all the nations. Look, I, I say all of that because that ambiguity of verse 1 challenges us with the question of how we read situations in our own lives. No, those, I guess, rare moments when we stop and try to figure out what we're doing. We, we, we pause, we ask the questions, why are we doing what we're doing? Where is this all going? What is the point of any of this? We can read that question with the darkness of verse 22 or the light of verse 2. And what will make the difference between how we see what's going on in our lives? Let's hold that as we come on because it's verse 2 that helps us toward finding that difference. Now, verse 2 is, is, is brilliantly structured, right? It has two halves to the verse, and the, the, the first half of each verse describes a situation. Can you see that there in verse 2? It says, The people walking in darkness, and those living in the land of deep darkness. Describing people in a settled place of darkness. That's where they live. That's where they walk about. They carry all of their life about in the dark. And when they go to work, they're under the shadow of the dark. When they marry and start families, they're under the shadow of the dark. All the, the joys and the sorrows and the struggles and the successes, everything in life, everything they do, everything they are, is under the shadow of darkness. And with chapter 8 ringing fresh in our ears, this darkness is unmistakably a species of darkness laced with mankind's wickedness. Now, we've been hearing how the sin of this people has built and built and built, and God has said, enough. Punishment is coming. But they refuse to have God in their lives, and so God is promising to withdraw and leave them on their own with no dawn and no tomorrow and be thrust into darkness. Now, when it says the land of deep darkness, the literal translation is the land of death's shadow. You see, when it, this Walking and living in darkness is not just describing these people then. It's describing all people at all times. Uh, everyone's experience. All of us here today live under that 
shadow of darkness. Now, the, the, the darkness can be so familiar that, that, that we stop seeing it. Like in um, the C.S. Lewis novel with Puddleglum. Which one has Puddleglum in it? Silver chair, thank you. It has this brilliant scene in that um, where, where they go into this underground kingdom where everything is darkness. And, and the spell on people in that kingdom is that they think that the darkness is only it. They can't see anything else. They think that is all that there is to life, just darkness. Now, we can live like that, can't we? We, we, we live in the darkness. It's all around us so much that we just don't even know it's there. Sometimes we feel it, though. Uh, a guy called Ezra Pound wrote a very simple poem that says this. And the days are not full enough, and the nights are not full enough, and life slips by like a field mouse, not shaking the grass. And we live under the shadow of death. Now later in Isaiah, he will call it the sheep that covers all the nations, the universal reality that all living ends in dying. And from the moment we take our first breath, we are assured that one day we will breathe our last. And that shadow hangs over every moment. The finality of it just looms and leaks into every day. And life is slipping by like a field mouse. The slipping by is barely noticed and nothing is ever enough. And the Bible says it wasn't meant to be like that. And in the beginning, God said, if you refuse me, you will be without me. And he's life. And without him, turning from him, there is only death. And so death has invaded our world and it's put its long shadow over every generation. And with all of that in mind, we have to ask now in Isaiah, what will God do to such a place? Now this place where people have refused him. Where all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. And in our rebellion, we have drawn to ourselves the just anger of the living God. We live in darkness, under death's shadow, because we deserve to. And the future is heavy with doom, because we've chosen it to be like this. And we ask, how will the holy God, revealed in Isaiah 6, holy, 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 how will he deal with such a people? And we ask more personally, how will he deal with me and with you? We'll look again at verse 2, the second part of each half. It says, they have seen a great light. A light has dawned. Now, now whether the upward turn comes in verse 1 or verse 2, but whenever it comes, when it does come, it is rapid. It is a breathless rise as light invades the darkness. The the darkness represents the shadow of death. So if the light is coming, the light means the shadow is being pushed back, being shrunk as the dawn comes and death itself being repealed. That's how God chooses to treat people living in wickedness and rebellion and subject to the justice of death. God chooses to shine the light. Now these people see a great light, not because they search for it, They don't see a great light because they've they've made some fires to kind of shine the light themselves. They see the light because the light shines on them. The invasion of light is completely undeserved. And it marks the changing of everything. Following the light comes a a rapid rush of abundant blessing. For Isaiah's time, that shining of the light was in the future. A future day when Galilee of the nations would be honoured. 
uh, the, the future day that has come. Uh, as John's gospel records the coming of the Lord Jesus and says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. As Matthew's gospel records how Jesus lived in Galilee to, and fulfilling the words of Isaiah, Jesus came to that place and proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent is his message because the light now shines in the darkness. Turn, he says, turn and see and trust and hope because a new day has dawned. Dawned with the coming of Jesus into the world. A new day into which we can all belong if we submit our ways to Christ. What does the light shining in Isaiah 9 mean? Uh, I think it's immediately explained in two different ways. We see the light of gladness and the light of freedom. Let's see that verse. Verse 3, the light of gladness. Um, a guy called Blaise Pascal was French and a mathematician and a philosopher and um, a scientist and an all-round clever chap. Total genius, apparently. Um, and he said this. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. It's not that clever, is it, really? I think, I think we all know that, don't we? All of us could have said that. Um, everybody wants to be happy. And because everyone wants to be happy, that's why verse 3 sparkles so much. There's a slight kind of um, translation confusion in the first line of verse 3. You could put in the word not. It's hard to make sense of that. You could put in the kind of phrase to it. Or if you miss out a space between the words, instead of nation, you get exaltation, which is the same word at the end of the verse. And that would set it up a bit like this. You have enlarged exaltation. You have increased rejoicing. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors exult when dividing the plunder. The point is that the shining of the light brings with it an explosion of happiness. And, and to help kind of, kind of get our heart attached onto how great the joy is, it gives two comparisons. It says it's like this and it's like this. It's like harvest time and it's like victory time. Two kind of spheres of celebration to help convey the completeness of the joy. It's like harvest happiness. At the moment when a year of hard labor by all the community is paid off, when the anxious watching and the, the painful toil and the early mornings and the late nights, when it all comes good and the work of the harvest is done and the barns are filled and all that is left is to celebrate. Or, or like the sharing of the plunder of war. When the warriors come back from a victory and they come back with great wealth, there are riches to be shared. And as the riches are shared, the only thing left is just to celebrate. And living in our times, celebration of harvest or dividing the plunder of battle might not resonate with us. Might do, but probably not. And But I, I often think of the I've said this loads of times, but the, the, the first series of Britain's Got Talent, uh, one of the early series, there was a, a Welsh guy called Hugh uh, who delivered pizza for a living. And, and it, it, you know the way the program's set up. He's going to audition, he's going to sing his song, but it, it's all kind of put as if it's going to be a complete disaster. And he stands there on stage and it looks hopeless, and then he sings, and he sings beautifully. I think he sings um, the, the Les Mis song, doesn't he? Bring him home, I think he does. 
brilliant, like absolutely beautiful. Everyone is blown away and he comes off the stage and immediately he's interviewed and he says, for this moment, I feel complete. There it is, it's just a tiny window opened. A split second gaze into happiness. In that moment, he experienced joy. That's very individual. I think we see it when a a sports team wins a competition. Uh, I was listening to a guy on the radio, an Indian guy who lives in Luton, speaking about Luton FC being promoted to the Premier League. And and he said the whole town came together on that night. And and everyone was celebrating, people from all different kind of backgrounds and cultures, all coming together with this huge rush of joy. But it doesn't last. Now, life is full of these little windows that they open for a, a moment on joy. And when they open, we get that fresh breeze of, of happiness caressing our souls for a moment. Harvest happiness. The joy of sharing plunder. The happiness of being with loved ones. The joy of a good meal. The, 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 the smile of a baby. It doesn't last. The next minute they're screaming and the house falls down. But, but it's a glimpse, a glimpse of something wonderful. Verse 3 tells us how God will take those moments and amplify them and explode them into eternal dimensions. The shining of the light brings an explosion of happiness. And the size of the joy will be in proportion to its object. Because the very center of the verse is they rejoice before you. Literally to your face. Celebrating in the face of God. Pascal said, all men seek happiness. Uh, Long before him, Augustine had said the same. And and, and then Augustine thought about it. He said, oh, everyone seeks happiness. Then he said, maybe they don't, actually. Uh, Maybe not everybody wants to be happy because they don't look to the only one who can make them truly happy. Now, everyone wants to be happy, but everyone seems to be trying to find happiness in things that don't last. He, He says, if you won't trust you're everything to God, it's because you don't want to be happy. Or, or as C.S. Lewis said, we're far too easily pleased. We don't take seriously the massiveness of what God promises. Maybe we don't dare. We, we don't dare to think that God might just know what he's talking about more than we do. And so we settle for messing about in the muck. I, I guess our problem comes that well, the first half of verse 3 tells us, you do it. God does it. And we can't find our happiness without him. We can't find eternal joy. Eternal joy will only come when it is joy found in him. And the problem is we have to trust him. We have to trust him. You know, a guy called John who lived a few hundred years ago said, all that delights you in earthly things can never satisfy you. All that delights you in earthly things can never satisfy you. The, the, the harvest, the dividing of the plunder, in themselves they cannot satisfy, but they can help us understand what happiness is like. In, in the way that, okay, that the smell of a meal can tell us what the meal will be like. He says, for all your desires are eminently for God himself, and the comforts you had here on earth in this life are but only drops in flaming, not satisfying the appetites of your soul. I wonder if we dare to hope for such happiness. Do we dare to trust what God promises? The light shines in the darkness, shining and pushing back death's shadow. 
A death that sucks up our joy, that squeezes happiness from life. The light shines, it brings an explosion of joy. Happiness promise that is no longer shackled by death. Happiness that outlives death, that exists beyond this world of sadness. Matthew 4 tells us that it's the coming of Jesus that brings all of this. Matthew 4 tells us that Jesus came to do all of this for you. Jesus promises, although there is weeping in the night, there will be joy in the morning. Jesus promises those who trust him, he says, though you may have trouble today, you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. The light shines. What does the shining light mean in Isaiah 9? Well, immediately we're told it's the light of gladness. And then we're told about the light of freedom, verses 4 and 5. Now follow with me how we get to verse 4. We've got the light that shines in the darkness. It brings an explosion of joy. And what is it about the light that brings such a release of joy? But I think verse 4 and 5 help us with that. They're, they're explanations. You see that verse 4 begins with a 4. This is why the happiness blossoms. And, and as we come to verse 4, our attention is turned again to life in the darkness. We see in verse 4 that to walk in darkness is to live under an oppressive regime. Verse 4 speaks of the yoke that burdens them. Uh, an ox dragging a plow has a, a wooden yoke across its shoulder so that all the weight goes through there. This is what the people have been living with. Uh, this yoke that has forced them and crushed them. They have they've lived as slaves, slave-like labor, and it has burdened them, the constant weight dragging them down. And the bar across their shoulders is the staff in the hand of the slave driver who gets his ways with beating. Their shoulders are scarred with the blows they have endured. And the rod of the oppressor, they've lived under the reign of the oppressor, the one who oppressed them. Now these people have been crushed. But verse 4 heralds good news. The good news that God will take action and these tools of oppression will be shattered The rod used to beat them will splinter. The yoke that burdened them will disintegrate. The rulers who oppress them will be gone. And it will be as in the day of Midian's defeat. Now in verse 3 we get a flavor of happiness when we think about harvest celebration. Verse 4 we get a flavor of liberation when we think about what happened to Midian. And our minds need to go back hundreds of years back into the time of the judges. You read in Judges 6 to 8, the time of Gideon. A time when the Israelites did evil and they were handed over to the Midianites. Days famous for the intensity of oppression. The Midianite army was so big and so ruthless that the people had to flee away to the mountains as the Midianites covered the land. And they showed no mercy and they plundered everything. And the people cried out until the Lord sends a prophet. And the prophet says to them, God has rescued you from Egypt. He delivered you from those who oppressed you. He said to you, I am your God and you don't need to go to the false gods. God said, I am, I am with you. I am for you to save you. And the people responded to his grace by sticking up two fingers in his face. They didn't listen. But God is rich in mercy. Even though these people had pushed him away again. And again and again, he delivered them from the Midianite oppression. He did it with a tiny army led by a coward. 
God said, I want to do it like this to show you that it's all about me, that I'm doing it, to show that I love you and I will save you. And the day of Midian was a day of great oppression, a day of great deliverance, a day of great mercy from God. And the effect of all that is put into verse 5 of our passage when it speaks of the, the clothing of warfare being burned up, boots and cloaks, the things from the battlefield chucked away, they're never going to be needed again. And the message is that if even the clothing of warfare is not needed, if even you don't need the clothes, how much more everything else? That corresponds to the promise we saw back in chapter 2, verse 4, of the swords being beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Now, the liberation that God is going to bring, the shattering of the oppressor, will bring a lasting peace. The end of oppression is the final end. Now, our passage is putting before us the same thing in different ways. It's trying to build up the imagery. It's trying to take hold of our hearts. Verse 2, light shines in the darkness. Light pushing back the shadow of death. Verse 3, it produces an explosion of happiness. Verse 4, it's because the light shining is a yoke-breaking light. Now the darkness of verse 2 is an oppressive regime in verse 4. See, the world under darkness is the world under the rule under, under the rod of a ruler like Midian. A, a ruler who is ruthless and relentless and will ravage all the good in life. The bondage of mankind is the bondage of death. And death is a cruel master. Now, death puts a yoke across our shoulders. So every moment we are burdened with the emptiness and agony that its shadow brings. Death beats us into submission. We can't escape it. We can't mollify it with platitudes. Death holds us under its cruel dominion. It has its hands around our throats and it's oppressing. It refuses to let us have peace. It drains joy from every happiness. It is the great enemy. And like when that heavy hand of Midian fell on the land, the horror of death is that we deserve it. And 1 Corinthians 15 says the sting of death is sin. And the Israelites sinned and were handed over to the Midianites. And every one of us has sinned and have been handed over to death, we're under the great oppressor. Now the day of Midian, though, also tells how God brings great deliverance because of his great mercy. And our verses today speak of the dawning of a new day, that light shines in the darkness, the shadow of death is pushed back because the light shines, the bondage of death is shattered by the coming of the light. And Matthew 4 says the word of Isaiah is fulfilled when Jesus Christ walked the earth and proclaimed, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus Christ is the coming of the light. In him is life and his light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome him. You see, Jesus came because we were dead in our sins and because God is rich in mercy. And because of the great love with which he loved us, despite all of our sin and our rebellion, not because of anything about us or anything we could contribute, but because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ and saved us by his grace and saved us from sin because Christ took our sin and died for our sin. He died our death and then in victory, he rose to resurrection life, leaving death confounded, stingless, teeth broken, the yoke shattered, the staff snapped, the rod removed. 
1 Corinthians 15 says it will end like this. This is how it will end when the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. The darkness is, is pushed back. The oppression of death is shattered and joy explodes exponentially for all eternity. They're big promises. Huge promises. For, for Isaiah's time, for the people to hear these promises, the promises sit directly opposed to everything they see around them. Now what would it mean for them to hear these wonderful promises? Especially when the darkness seems to thicken every day. I think Isaiah has shown us himself in his own testimony in chapter 8, 17 when he says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face. I will put my trust in him. Now, there were many in Isaiah's time who despised the promises, refused to trust the Lord. People who stayed in the darkness. They remained under the oppression of death who had no saving because they didn't want what would make them happy. Now, sadly, there are many still today like that. Now, even here this morning, I guess, who will hear these promises from God fulfilled in Jesus. Promises written on page after page after page in the scriptures. Promises we hear week after week after week. And even then, still, there are those here who will not trust the Lord. Now, they'll hold out. They're trying to manage on their own. Thinking that they know better than what the Lord says. Trying everything else rather than doing what Jesus says. Jesus who says to repent of your sin and believe the good news. Trust your life to him. Trust your life to the one, the only one, who has conquered death. Anything else we go to can't do that for us. Now, as you sit here this morning, do you know what it means for you? And would you put your trust in him? Or take your stand with those who refuse his promises? Now, as you sit here this morning, these great promises that are put before us, staggering, staggering, weighty, huge, mind-blowing promises. Will you use the promises to strengthen your place with Isaiah so that you say with him, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face. I will put my trust in him. Because in that waiting, the trusting is fueled by the promises. In the darkness, what will be big enough to sustain Isaiah's waiting? Little promises, meager promises, breadcrumb promises. They're not enough. Wishful thinking won't do. Now, when Edmund Dante was in prison, in misery, the thing that sustained him was not tiny reward, but the expectation of untold riches. And the Lord knows our frame. He knows our burden. He knows the struggle of living in the darkness. He measures all of our tears in a bottle. And so to sustain us, he gives us such promises. He gives us promises that are so vast and so rich 
they can truly sustain all our waiting. To help us trust the Lord when his face is hidden, he feeds us on the promises. And we're to treasure up his promises. Promises so immense that if we, we face up to them and wrestle with them, they will shake us out of the lethargy that death brings. They'll tell us not to be too easily pleased, but to hope for happiness, for joy that cannot be taken away. Promises that tell us that death for us, for those who trust Christ, death will only be a doorway to life. And that life will be beyond death. And it will be with all joy. And it will be with endless peace. And we will rejoice before God forever and ever I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face. I will put my trust in him. Let's pray together. Our God Almighty, if we could see clearly, we would see that what you say is too much for us, far too much. Lord, Lord, even as we have tried to wrestle with what you've said this morning, Lord, there's We've, we've barely dipped our feet in the water of an ocean of such blessing and goodness that you would do to us, that you would promise to do to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we are so dull and our ears are stuck up and our hearts are distracted. Lord, even now we're, we're thinking of the next thing when you are putting these great promises before us. Please, Lord, have mercy on us. Open our eyes to see how much good you will do to us, how much we need the Lord Jesus and how much he does in chasing back the shadow of death, in shattering the yoke that oppresses us, bringing us into endless joy and pure freedom and peace forever and ever. Lord, as we wait, may we treasure the promises and trust in you. Amen. Uh, We're going to sing.